That would be great. Let's take a look at the Word of God this morning. Last Sunday, I began a new series of sermons. We started focusing on the story of Abram, who is this ancient man who God called out of a life of pagan idolatry. God sent Abram on a pilgrimage of faith, a pilgrimage of discovery. And many thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He had this to say about Abram. Now, by the time Paul wrote this, Abram's name had already been changed about uh, to Abraham. Don't let that confuse you. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. We read it a week ago, but I want to remind it to uh, remind you of it. Paul said, and now that you belong to Christ, so he's speaking to Christians of all different kinds of backgrounds here. Now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. God's promise to Abraham belongs to you who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we're talking about being heirs of the promise. We're talking about that promise made to Abram. So we spent our time last Sunday learning about the promise. If we're heirs of this promise, if we who are followers of Jesus Christ are heirs of the promise that God made to Abram, it behooves us to know what that promise is. We went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 to talk about it. We discovered that the promise itself includes several different elements. I just wanted to repeat them for you briefly this morning. We said that God promised in Genesis chapter 12, God promised a place, God promised a people, God promised prestige, God promised protection, and God promised a purpose. Aren't you blessed when God's promises all start with the same letter? That's pretty cool, isn't it? I don't know if it worked that way in the ancient Hebrew, but it sure does work out nice for us. Those are the things that God was promising to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And the New Testament says that you and I who are in Christ, we have inherited, we are heirs of this promise because we have become the spiritual descendants of Abram. So what we're going to do now, today and in the weeks moving forward, is we are going to follow the stories of Abram and his descendants. We're going to learn how they responded to the promise. And over the course of a few different generations, we're going to see his family wrestle with the word of God in their lives. And I think we're going to learn a few things about how God is interacting with us, because after all, this promise belongs to us. It was in the last part of the story that we read from Genesis chapter 12 last week that we learned that despite having arrived in the land of Canaan and having heard God affirm to him, this is the land, this is the place that I called you. We saw the map, we saw that Abram arrived there, but the very last line we read said he still continued to travel. He continued to journey south bit by bit into the Negev desert. And we soon learn why. We didn't get this far last week. But had we read on, we would have learned the reason why. Canaan was going through a severe famine at the time, and there was no food to be had. Now remember, Abram is not just a lonely wanderer. It's not just him and his wife. He's traveling. He's a, he's a rancher at this point. He has a big business. This is Kevin Costner in Yellowstone, right? He's got hundreds of people. He's got maybe as many as a thousand people with him. And there's a famine in the land. And so he makes the decision, the land here can't support us. We need to continue to go south. So his plan, I just want to highlight this here. Abram's plan is to abandon the land that God promised him. <clears throat> and to take his family even further south into Egypt where he believes there's going to be food. 
But before they get there, he anticipates a potential problem. And so I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 12, verse 11. It says, as he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, then we can have her. So please tell them you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Now, there's a lot of cultural stuff going on here that is very, very distant from the world and the culture and the reality and the norms that you and I live in. But can we not just pause and appreciate Abram's ridiculousness here? Husbands, can, can we learn to not follow in his example? Honey, have I told you how gorgeous you are? Mm. You're the most beautiful woman in the, in the world. I am so blessed to be married to you. Hey, let's pretend you're my sister. <laughs> I mean, that's what he said, right? Guys, this, this, this is not wise. This is not wise. This is not where we want to be. The rest of the chapter describes what happens to Abram and Sarai in Egypt. His prediction is right. All the Egyptian men are totally into her. And they're thinking that she's available because they've said, ah, she's my sister. But, you know, they're, they're, no, she's, she's not available until the king shows up. And, you know, it's good to be the king. The king gets what he wants. And so the Egyptian pharaoh actually takes Sarai into the palace to live as his mistress. And he sends Abram a bunch of thank you gifts in response. And all the men in this story seem to be relatively happy with the arrangement. Until God sends plagues against the Pharaoh's family. And the Pharaoh and his counselors figure out what's going on. They figure out Sarai isn't available at all. She's married to this guy, Abram. He sends Sarai back to her. He gets mad at Abram and he sends them all packing out of Egypt. This raises a few questions, doesn't it? Why, why did Abram go to Egypt? He was in the land he was supposed to be in. Why did he keep going? Why did he think it was necessary to move on? And why did he lie about his wife? Why did he think that was necessary? What about God's promises to Abram? What about the promise of, of safety and protection in a homeland? What about God's promise to, to, to make him a blessing to others? And now he's become a curse to the Egyptian. What about the promises? Has he forgotten? Hold that thought. We turn the page to chapter 13. Abram returns to Canaan, but he realizes that this ranching business is just way too big to occupy the same land as his nephew Lot in, in their ranching business. Something has to be done. And so we pick up that story in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to, become, to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want to the land to the left, then I'll take the land to the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, on its surface, 
It seems like this is a nice enough arrangement, right? It feels like this is a good way to ratchet down the conflict. Abram's just being generous here. He's saying, hey, you take first choice. You've got dibs here a lot. You pick what you want and I'll go the other way. But can we pause for a minute? Because we know part of the story that Lot doesn't know. And we know part of the story that it feels to me like Abram's forgotten here. What about God's promise of the land? We read how Abram sat literally under an oak tree and God said, this is it. This is the place. This is where I want you. God had already told Abram exactly where he wanted Abram to settle. And now Abram's leaving that up to Lot's whim. You pick this, I'll go the other way. You pick that, I don't know any way you want to go. Why wasn't Abram interested in hanging on to what God had given him? I think these episodes reveal a man that isn't focused on the promises of God. He's living his life according to what makes sense to him rather than living according to what God has already said is true. He has neglected the promises of God in his life. But aren't you glad today that God is faithful when we neglect his promises? God is faithful. Put the word even in there, would you? God is faithful even when we neglect his promises. Here's your land, God had told Abram way back in chapter 12. Here's the place. Here it is. Right here is the spot I prepared for you and your descendants. This is exactly the location where I want to bless you. Here's the spot where I'm going to keep you. I'm going to prosper you. And I'm going to make you safe. And Abraham said, no, no, no. I think I better go to Egypt because it looks like they have more food there. And I think I better lie about my wife and pimp her out to a foreign king because it looks like they might hurt me if I don't do that. And I think I better let my nephew decide where I'm going to live because it looks like he'll get mad if I insist on keeping it. That's what Abram said. We neglect the promises of God when we choose to trust our own insight and trust our own wisdom more than we trust what God has said. And I want to tell you what that often sounds like in in today's world. It sounds like, oh, Lord, I know what you said about saving it for marriage, but we're in love. It says, oh, I know, God, what you said about honoring you with, your fina- with my finances, but I just really can't afford to do that right now. You understand. It sounds like, God, I know you said to consecrate a day for worship with your people, but I'm just too busy these days. You get it. And it sounds like dozens of other things that we could probably come up with off the top of our heads. But the good news is that God is faithful to his promises even when we are not. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. He cannot deny who he is. He can't break his promises. Even if he wanted to, he can't. He can't break his promises when we are unfaithful, even if we are unfaithful still. He is faithful. You know what Abram's neglect did? Abram's neglect delays God's blessings in his life. It brings pain to the people he loves. It leaves him with some consequences that are going to be very, very difficult to deal with. But it does not disqualify him from what God has promised him. 
We are heirs of that promise. You and I who are in Christ Jesus have inherited that promise, which means that we live in the same measure of grace. When we unfaithfully neglect the word of God, we create all manner of pain for ourselves and for the people that we care for. We very often delay the good work that God wants to do in us and through us. But you know what we don't do? We never fall beyond his grace because God is is faithful. We turn the page to Genesis chapter 4 and there we read about how Abram gets himself tangled up in a land war. A bunch of kings from neighboring city-states go to battle against each other. They're trying to take over land. and Abram's trying his best to steer clear of all of this difficulty, but he finds out that his old nephew Lot has been taken captive in one of the skirmishes. And so Abram puts together a unit of about 300 commandos and he executes a search and rescue mission for Lot. And he's successful. They do it. They, they recapture Lot. They save Lot and they, they uh, recover everything that was stolen and he restores peace to that area. To that area. The victory that he wins, though, I can't help but thinking... Uh, rings a bit hollow to Abram. Because this is not why Abram has come to Canaan. He's not here to settle land disputes amongst warring kings. He's not here to rescue nephews who apparently went the wrong way when they chose their land. Abram is still well aware of God's promises, but he is beginning to question if he's even going to live to see them come true. And eventually we hear Abram voice those questions and those concerns to God In prayer, Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 2, we read, Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings? Ooh, I don't know about that, Abram. What good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. In response, God tells Abram plainly that he will, in fact, have a son of his own. And what's more, God tells Abram that his descendants will number like the stars in the sky. It's a pretty good answer, isn't it? But his answer only satisfies Abram for so long. It's just a few verses later in verse 8 that Abram and God are having another conversation. It says, Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? I mean, I know you've said it to me about 150 times so far, but for reals, that's what Abram is saying here. And before we get too harsh on Abram, let's acknowledge the reality that he's living in. He's an older man at this point. He's seen a lot. It's been a long time since God first called out to him. He's living in the land that God promised to him, but it's no great nation. Warring kings, unwelcome neighbors, they're all making things miserable for Abram and his family. There's a promise of a people to call his own, but he still doesn't even have a child to call his own. When he dies, everything he owns is going to pass on to somebody with a different last name. There's a promise of prestige, and to be honest, his neighbors are certainly beginning to take notice of him, but one could hardly say that Abram has a great name. 
Thus far, most of his neighbors consider him to be more of a nuisance than a blessing. Anybody have a witness in their spirit about that? (laughs) There's been a promise of protection, and okay, he's still alive, kicking, but he's had to ward off philandering kings and cruel armies and a greedy nephew. I mean, he feels very far from secure. And as for the promise of purpose, I mean, could anybody imagine any realistic way that this Abram that we know at this point is honestly going to become a blessing to every family on earth? Come on now. We can hardly blame Abram for questioning God about the promises. But aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that God is patient when we object to his promises? He's patient when we object to his promises. Too many of us have convinced ourselves that it's rude to ask God to repeat himself. Such is not the case. Because there are days when in our brokenness and in our sinfulness, our willingness to trust just gets stretched beyond its limits. And sometimes there are circumstances that make us wonder if we even heard God right in the first place. Have you ever been there? In those moments, we're prone to cry out in our weakness, is this really what you wanted, God? I mean, come on. Is this as good as it gets? I want you to imagine something now. I want you to imagine that you, today, just after service, Sue and I came up to you and we said, look, we have something we need to tell you. You are our favorite member of HRCC. Don't tell anybody else. We're not allowed to say it out loud or publicly, but between you and me, you're the one. We don't even like the rest of those guys. You are our favorite members of HRCC. And in order to demonstrate just our gratitude and our appreciation for your friendship and for your partnership in ministry, we decided that what we wanted to do was take you with us on an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii. Sound pretty good? We're headed to Hawaii. This is a hypothetical scenario, Tracy. But I will say, if the reverse ever, you know, comes across. Imagine we said we were going to take you to Hawaii, but here's what we're going to do. We're not going this week or anything. We're going to plan this trip. We're going to go in February when it's cold in Chicago. We've got nonstop tickets from O'Hare all the way to Hawaii. We've got a a couple of hotel rooms on a beach, on a resort. We're going to spend 10 days down there in paradise. We want you to come with us. We just want to express our our appreciation to you. And you're like, yes. And so for the next five months, you know, just don't tell anybody about it, right? We don't want anybody to get jealous, but okay. So for the next five months, you're, you're... you're packing your bathing suits up. You're, you're, you're getting yourself ready. You're counting down the days. You've got it circled on the calendar. And then the day comes. The day of the trip comes. And you meet us at O'Hare. we got a nonstop flight. We're not being silly. We didn't swing for first class or anything like that. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pack into coach together. I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. Nonstop flight. It's just over nine hours to fly from Chicago to Hawaii. So you get on the plane, it's a plane full of cold, uh, grumpy Chicagoans who are on their way to paradise. Can you picture the plane, right? And so you sit down on that plane between Sue and me, we make you take the middle seat. We get an hour into the flight and you're looking around 
There's no sand. You can't see sandy beach. We, we told you there was going to be sandy beaches. You can't see sandy beaches anywhere. We get three hours into the flight. You, you can't hear the crashing waves. I mean, I know we're not there yet, but you'd think we're almost there. I've waited five months. You tell me it's only a matter of hours. I can't even hear the waves crashing yet. You're starting to get pretty perturbed. You wait five hours into the flight. Nobody's offered you a tropical cocktail. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting next to your pastor, so there'd be issues there anyhow. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, come on, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? We're doing it eight hours. You can't even smell the pig roast. There's no tiki torches. Nobody's in their bathing suits. You're looking around the plane. Everybody's still bundled up in their Chicago stuff. And finally, you've had all you can stand. And you look at us and you say, Dan and Sue, well, you know, what's the deal here? You tell me five months ago you're going to take me to Hawaii. For five months, I've been waiting to get there. You told me this was going to be the day. I had to circle on my calendar. You told me that this very day we would be relaxing out on the beach. Here we are. We're really hardly even an hour away, and I don't see sand. I don't hear an ocean. I can't smell the fish. Nobody's giving me any porn. You know what's the deal here? I don't know if I can even believe you anymore. What are you up to? If you did that to me, I would put your sorry tail on the very next plane back to Chicago, <laughs> and I would have a nice vacation with my wife. Aren't you glad God's not like me? Everybody say amen. amen. <laughs> Your questions are foolish. Your questions make me feel like you don't trust me. I find you annoying. But God doesn't find his covenant people to be annoying, even when they ask questions. He doesn't cut them off when they get frustrated or raise their concerns. He's patient with us, even when we ask again and again and again, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I mean, is that not exactly what the people of God ask him again and again and again? If you feel like you've been waiting for God too long, too long for that breakthrough in your life, well, maybe, Maybe you're less than an hour away. You say, Pastor, I don't see any evidence of that. Well, that's because the plane hasn't landed yet. Plane hasn't landed yet. But when God breaks through, God breaks through. It's hard to wait for that, though, isn't it? That's why I've got a little bit more empathy for Abram in this part of the story. I've found that two of the most important words in the book of Psalms are how long. Time and time again, the psalmist cries out to God saying, I know your promises, but how long? Psalm 6, he says, how long, O Lord, until you restore me? Psalm 13, how long must I struggle with this anguish in my soul? Psalm 35, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Psalm 74, how long, O God, will you allow your enemies to insult you? Psalm 89, how long will all this go on? Psalm 94, how long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? Psalm 119, how long must I wait for you to punish those who persecute me? And yes, I could go on, but that's enough. How long, Dan, are you going to keep making this point? And each time, God responds with patience and with understanding. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. 
No, he's being patient for your sake. God is patient even when we object to the promises. He's patient and we can be confident that his timing is always, always, always in the favor of his people. As it turns out, that last objection that Abram raises gets responded to. God responds to him with a, well, an unusual assignment. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram. Abram says, hang on a second, got to write this down. Heifer, goat, female, ram a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all of these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. I want you to remember that picture in your mind. We're going to come back to it. The next few verses tell us that Abram eventually exhausts himself and falls, perhaps supernaturally, into a very deep sleep during which God revealed to him that his descendants were going to actually spend many generations living as slaves in Egypt, but that they would eventually be rescued and they would return to the land of God's promise. And then in verse 17, we read this. As the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. And it goes on to describe, we've heard God say, I've given you this land before, but this time he's given Abram a little bit more information. It's not this land. He's saying, Abram, let me show you exactly what I'm doing for you. Let me show you exactly what I'm doing for you and for your heirs. Now, this is a really unusual passage, and it deserves some explanation. Let me try and do that for us today. Abram's made a series of animal sacrifices, and he's cut the carcasses in half, and the half carcasses are laid out in two parallel lines with a path right down the middle. Isn't that lovely? Historians tell us that that was actually one way in which a contract or a covenant could be cut in the ancient Near East in the time of Abram and in others. Uh, from that era. We have historical records actually of ceremonies in which the parties involved in a contract or a covenant finalized and sealed the deal by making animal sacrifices, cutting the carcasses in half, and then walking together down a path that was lined with these half carcasses of sacrificed animals. Aren't you grateful for DocuSign? Next time you go and have to sign a bunch of papers and initial enough bunch of papers and complain about these stupid lawyers, what are they all you need all this stuff for? Just remember, we could be walking down paths filled with half carcasses. That's what's going on here. The problem is that it doesn't appear that that's what's going to happen because Abram's all alone. There's nobody else to sign the deal. There's nobody else to walk between the carcasses. There's nobody else to go down that path with him. And so he's laid the carcasses out and nothing's happening. So eventually the vultures begin to swirl overhead and eventually they're swooping down because it's an easy meal, right? And, And can you picture Abram like, get away, get away. And he's running around chasing them all away. And, and then that's when God shows up. 
God shows up. Abram has this vision of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He doesn't know this because it hasn't happened yet, but we know it because it reminds us of the story of what's going to happen to those descendants that are enslaved in Egypt, right? We'll remember the story about his descendants passing through the Red Sea, which has been halved, a path with half on this side and and half on that side. And in that story, do you remember how God's presence went with his people? It was in, in the form of a pillar of fire and billowy smoke, like a cloud. It's the very same way here. God's presence is showing up and walking through the path. He has shown up in supernatural smoke and in fire. Why? To sign the contract and to guarantee his promises. But none of that can happen. None of that can happen unless Abram had first taken the effort to chase off those vultures. Can you picture him doing that? I mean, people must have thought he lost his mind. He, he, he's running around. He's acting like a fool. He's, he's got all these dead animals laying around in the wilderness. Shoo! Get away! Get away! Go! 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 Get out of here! And he's running around like a maniac. He does it all day and exhausts himself to the point where he just falls down asleep because he's been chasing vultures around the wilderness trying to stop them from stealing dead animal carcasses. What a fool! What an absolute fool. I think something changed in Abram's spirit that night. After so many years of bumbling and fumbling his way through God's promises, something's different now. Do you see it? God has spoken again, and this time, Abram's not merely obeying. He's out here in the wilderness sun, and he's fighting for what God has said. He's not neglecting God's promises. He's not objecting to God's promises. He's protecting God's promises. And God is present when we protect his promises. The Bible says that we who are in Jesus are heirs of the promise that God made to Abram. God's word over us today speaks his promises directly into our lives just as well. And I think it's time we started protecting those promises with the full expectation that when we do, God shows up. You see, there's an enemy of your soul who wants to steal the promises of God from your heart. And like the vulture he is, he wants to pick them up and he wants to carry them off and he wants to leave you all alone in the wilderness. He does it by tricking you or trying to trick you into thinking that you heard God wrong or that maybe the promises aren't for you. Or maybe that you disqualified yourself by your neglect and your objections like we talked about earlier. He lies to you. He's the father of lies. It's what he does. It's his, it's his first language. He lies to you about who you are. He lies to you about who God is. And he lies about what lies in store for you. Can you picture him swooping down, stealing the promises of God right out of your life? But in the power of Jesus, you can stand up and shoo him away. You can rebuke him in the name of Jesus. You can remind him that he is a defeated enemy, but you, you are a child of the one true king. And it's like, shoo, get out of here. It's not for you. 
You are the beloved of God, and you kick him away. You are a member of the royal priesthood of believers. That's who you are. You are forgiven and set free. You are clothed with the glory of Jesus. You are a new creation, no longer a slave to your own sinfulness. You are the righteousness of God, according to Scripture. You are seated with him in heavenly realms. So get away. Those promises aren't for you. You are the heir of the promise. It's time we start protecting what God has spoken in us and over us. Even if we look the fool doing it. (laughs) Even if we look the fool doing it. It's time we tell the enemy that what God has given us is not for him to steal. It's time we speak the truth about who we are and about who he is. Who's ready? Who's ready to start protecting the promises of God in their life? Who's ready to start shooing the enemy away? Who's ready to start treating him like the vulture he is? Who's ready to exhaust themselves with the passion of their conviction that what God has said is true? Maybe you say to me, oh, it's well and good, Pastor, but I don't know that God has said anything to me. You Christians get together and talk about the promises of God in your life, but uh, I think you're weird. Maybe you say, well, I even consider myself a Christian, but this is where things start to get kind of above my pay grade, as I see it. I don't know that God has really promised me anything in particular. Can I remind you today what the Apostle Paul said about you who are in Christ Jesus? He said, oh, you are heirs of the promises made to Abram. Even if you don't know how to understand or you've never had the experience that God has spoken directly into your life, even if... We'll work on that another day, but even if, are you with me on the even if? If your life is submitted to Jesus Christ, you start with the promises God made to Abraham. You start with that. Those are your promises today. I don't want to ever hear you say, I don't know if God's ever spoken to me (laughs) because God actually said otherwise. I don't know that God has ever promised me anything. No, 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 no. He's promised you a place. He's promised you a people. He's promised you prestige. He's promised you protection and he's promised you a purpose. There's no need for you to wander around saying, well, you know, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. No, 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 no. God has said otherwise. You know whose voice that is. That's the vulture. That's the vulture. So shoo him away. Shoo him away. Give him away from what God has promised you. You say, well, that sounds like hard work. Well, talk to Abram. Yeah, it is. It is. But I think part of what we need is to develop a a habit as a community. That this is what we do. This is what we do. I think we need that habit as a community when I talk about the church with a capital C. Wouldn't it be great if that's what the church was known for? What What are Christians known for? 
Christians are people who actually believe the word of God. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic, right? That would be that would be a good starting point. But can I say that I think I think there's an application here that would serve us really well just as as this family right here, right? This part of the family tree right here at Hobson Road Community Church. And HRCC, can I tell you, you're, you're getting pretty good at it. You're getting pretty good at it. I want to be in a church community where if I show up on any given Sunday beat up and in that place where we recognize that Abram was, where it's like, I, I just don't know anymore. I just don't know. I want to be in a community where there's a co-heir or two or five or ten or a hundred or so that are going to look me in the eye and say, this is what the Word of God says about you. So you're allowed to be down today, but don't you let the devil steal your promises. Amen. You're allowed to be having a rough time today, but don't you dare let the enemy take what God has given to you. And if you can't see it today, I can see it for you. And so I'm just going to speak it again for you. I'm going to speak it again for you. You were called. You were called. Do you understand that today, church? You were called. You were anointed. You were anointed. You aren't here by accident. Come on now. You aren't here by accident. God found you in your filth. He picked you up, what does the word say, out of the miry clay. I don't know what miry clay is, but I'll bet you can find some outside with all the rain we have this morning. He picked you up out of the miry clay, and he set your feet upon a rock. Come on now. He set your feet upon a rock. You say, I'm not feeling That's okay. There's plenty of room up here next to me. Come on with me now. We're going to stand on this rock together. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look each other in the eye and we're going to start speaking the word of God over each other. Because, because I don't have it every day. You know what I'm saying? I don't have it every day. Church, I'm not just preaching. I'm not just preaching. I have walked, I've walked through some journeys. And I can think of specific times in the last year where I've looked at individuals in you in the eye and said, I, need to, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have it. I don't have it. I'm not ready. I don't, I don't think I can do this. And there are people in this room who have looked me in the eye and said, here's what God said about you. If you've never had that experience with a, with a brother or sister, I, I want to apologize. We need to do better. We need to do better. Every person in this room who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior has been called, has been empowered, has been anointed. Every one of you has a purpose. Every one of you is an heir of that promise that says every family on earth is going to be blessed because of you. Come on now. Come on now. That's just burned in my belly all this week. As I looked through this text and I, I put these, you know, these, I planned my sermons out, right? So I put these chapters aside a few months ago. I knew, you know, on such and such a date, okay, we're going to do Genesis 12 through 15. And I had a general idea that this is, you know, what, what those stories are and what that's going to say. But boy, when I began to put Sunday service together and read through these stories, I could not get rid of the image of an old man in the wilderness chasing vultures. I want to be that fool. 
I want you to be that fool with me. I want us to spend our lives here chasing vultures. Would you do that with me? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we can start right there. I'd like you to bow your heads and we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray and I just invite you to agree with me in your hearts. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. I want to be known as an heir to the promise. And I ask, Lord, that you would come and walk with me. That you would show up in my life as you showed up in Abram's life. That you would sign the contract. I submit everything I have to you. And I make it my intention that from this point forward, I'm not going to believe what I always thought about myself. I'm not going to believe what the world says about me. But I'm going to choose to believe what you have said. Lord, I acknowledge that there are going to be days moving forward when I am going to stumble. But I'm going to remember on those days that I can never stumble beyond your grace. And so I ask that you would put your hand upon me, that you would remind me of that day by day and even moment by moment if that's what I need. I want to live for you. Help me to do so. Church, if you prayed that prayer with me today for the very, very first time, I believe God showed up in your life. You say, well, I didn't see fire torch. I did. I did. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are an heir of the promise. And if you don't believe me, you find somebody else in this room and you listen to what they have to say, okay? You are an heir of the promise. Lord, you're looking at the spiritual descendants of Abram. We haven't even gotten to this language yet, but you're looking at a branch that's been grafted into this great tree that you planted throughout eternity. You are seeing a part of your work for your kingdom. Would you bless us today? Would you bless us? Oh, we haven't gotten to this part of the story either, but Lord, we're we're grabbing hold of you today, and we're saying we aren't going to let go of Jesus until you bless us until you bless us. Would you bless us today? Lord, we are the people. We know it now. We know it. You weren't hiding it from us, but we just, we're starting to see it a little bit different. Lord God, we are the people that you have made some promises to, and we're here ready, thirsty, Lord, for your blessing to be poured out upon us. God, I pray for each and every member of this church today, each and every person who's here alive today. Lord, would you burn this within us? God, would you quicken us with energy? Lord, may we be vulture chasers who would chase off the enemy. It is not for him. It is for us. It is for us. And we receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. Amen.